I turned to my lab, my chocolate lab, who was sitting next to me watching with me. And I, I said to him, I'm pretty sure my words were, I had no idea you had a brain. I, I, turned, I, just, I said, I didn't know dogs were this interesting. I'm Phil Hatterman, and you're listening to Dog Words, presented by Rosie Fund. Today on Dog Words, Alex Peacock describes his journey from curious amateur dog trainer as a youth to growing up to become a professional dog trainer with both in-home and blended online learning programs specializing in helping dogs with anxiety. A link to Alex's dogtrainingprogram.com is in the description. If you're new to Dog Words, in each episode we explore the world of dog care and companionship. We save each other is the motto of Rosie Fund, which simply means the more we do for dogs, the more they do for us, and they already do a lot. Your opportunity to vote for Maggie or any of the other wonderful dogs in the Pooch playoffs is just days away. Follow Rosie Fund on Facebook or Instagram for the latest updates. We'll make announcements here on Dog Words, but they won't be as timely as the social media posts. Thank you so much to photographer Claire Shelley from Bigfoot Photography for all of her hard work. Learn more at BigfootPetPhotography.com. You can support Rosie Fund by making a donation on our website or Facebook page. You can also contribute by making a purchase from the store on our website, buying a t-shirt at Bonfire.com, or buying our note cards featuring Rosie and Peaches and our shirts on BarkYours.com. Links are in the description. Your donations and purchases help fund the Rosie Life Starter Kits that make sure these senior and harder-to-adopt dogs have some of the items they'll need in their forever home. Any donation amount is greatly appreciated, but here are some popular levels. $30 provides a collar and leash for a Rosie Life Starter Kit dog, and $100 covers their entire kit. You can also support Rosie Fund by downloading, subscribing, rating, and most importantly, sharing dog words. Follow us on social media, even if you aren't looking for a dog. Watching and sharing the videos helps our channel gain exposure, bringing awareness to our cause and giving shelter dogs much-needed attention. Our free Rosie Fund YouTube channel offers great videos of Rosie, Peaches, Vinny, Rosie Fund Ambassador Maggie, and shelter dogs looking for their forever home. We welcome your comments, questions, and suggestions, especially if you have an idea for a topic or guest. Go to the podcast page at rosiefund.org to share your thoughts. The mission of Rosie Fund is to provide humans with the resources and education they need to give senior and harder-to-adopt dogs a better life. We thank you for joining our mission. Today on Dog Words, our guest joining us from New Hampshire is dog anxiety specialist Alex Peacock. Alex, welcome to Dog Words. Thank you very much. I'm excited to be here. We're going to talk about the services that you offer and, and how people can access them, whether they're in New Hampshire or around the world, because you have virtual consultations. But tell us how you became a dog anxiety specialist. Absolutely. So um, when I was a teenager, my interest peaked for dog training. Uh, we had a family dog, a couple of different family dogs that had a slew of behavioral issues. And the long story short is basically that I watched some dog training TV shows. I thought it was the coolest thing I'd ever seen. And I decided that I was going to train the family dog. And that did not work really at all. And so that frustrated me greatly. But having the personality I do, I decided that I was going to make that my profession one day. And I was going to figure it out. And I was going to help people like me and my family to avoid the frustrations of the dog issues that we had encountered and the stress of that and help people have a, a peaceful, happy life with their dog. And a lot of the issues we had struggled with were anxiety-based issues. So later on down the road, I did become a professional trainer once I was an adult. And at first, I was a broadly behavior modification-based trainer. And then I saw a big need for anxiety focus. There's a lot of anxious dogs. It seems to be kind of like with humans. It seems to be increasing in our world. And I simply noticed that it was one of the issues that was a little more complex, and therefore it was not being touched on quite as much as it needed to be. I think trainers tend to be fairly broad in our approach. You know, you have various professions, you know, dentists and such that's really specialized, right? And I think dog training is still kind of in the area where everybody's kind of trying to do everything. And I found that anxiety being a little more complex, being a little more nuanced was kind of being a little bit left on the wayside. Separation anxiety gets addressed okay. A couple other things get addressed okay. But for the most part, anxiety was kind of this wild west of behavior. And you would um, never and go through that with- sort of treatment strategy with a human, even beyond your example of dentistry, but even behavioral issues or sort of psychological or psychiatric issues that someone might be having, 
they're going to want someone who focuses on what their needs are and not just a generalist. Right, exactly. When you have something going on, even mental health wise, you you tend to look for a specialist, right? And that's usually the best way to go. Someone who really knows that particular yeah, thing. Is this and so depression, I is had, this addiction recovery? It's like Yeah. Yeah, it depends on Yeah, what exactly. Exactly, exactly. That's spot on. And so I I, you know, noticed that one of the things I had been doing is I'd done a few like board and train style things. I was doing a lot of private in home training. And what I found was that none of them were as effective as they needed to be. I found that I was able to solve the dog's anxiety issues. For example, a dog would come stay with me for a month or whatever. And within that month, the dog would be a different dog. I would bring them home and the family would be like, oh my gosh, this dog is a different dog. This is so exciting. This is great. And then over the next few months, it would slowly go back to where it was. I've also adopted anxious dogs and you know had the same transformation, but had it maintained. And so what I found was, okay, if, if I can solve the problem, but then they can't maintain it, that means that the issue we're having is in the owner education side of things. So I thought, okay, what we need is something more robust. That's where we came up with kind of the, I have six month training programs that are all completely online. And so you can get access to me virtually one-to-one as well as a ton of pre-recorded downloadable lessons that are a little more succinct than just me talking to you face-to-face mm-hmm. that you get to keep forever. And so it's basically just a very robust, I've got multiple tiers of training programs and it's very, very robust in order to really take you from A to Z of anxiety and really solve those issues. So that's kind of how I got into it. And I just, I saw that the current methods were not working as well as they could be. I also developed more specific techniques. I've got a lot of kind of themes that go throughout my program. So not only do we have very specific techniques and themes for working on anxiety that I think help people really understand it, but also we made it really accessible through very comprehensive, fairly long and virtual programs. I want to circle back to a point you made and bounce my amateur theory off the brain of the specialist. You said that dogs, like humans, seem to be having more anxiety issues than they used to. So people used to have to produce things, do things in order just to survive. They had to use their hands. They had to problem solve. They had to get outdoors. They're chopping wood. They're tilling a field. They're a blacksmith or they're maintaining the home and keeping the children alive. There's these tangible things that they're doing, which has evolved into a virtual world where so much of what you do doesn't require getting outdoors or using your hands while there are many jobs that do that. But also you don't see the tangible results of what you're doing, that it's just data being manipulated, moved around. So dogs go from thousands and thousands of years of moving around outdoors with people, helping them, serving them, being fed by them, getting the scraps, exercising without limit, to now the dogs are pampered, living in an apartment in climate-controlled atmosphere all the time, except for when it's nice out. And then they go out. And so they don't have the stress that they used to, which seems like that would be great. Humans don't have the stress that they used to, but it's a hidden stress. It's um, a stress that doesn't have a daily, weekly, seasonal relief as you accomplish something. You harvest the crops. You make the meal instead of just picking it up at a drive through you're doing something, there are results. The dogs don't have the stress of harsh weather that they used to have to endure, but then also they don't have the relief, the accomplishment that maybe as humans we don't think they need, but maybe they do. So their world becoming softer, having less gravity in it, leads them to be more anxious the same way that it does humans discuss. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think that's very accurate. I've talked about this on a couple of different podcasts. Actually, I was chatting with a dog breeder, Julie Swan, and we were talking about the same thing that she was talking about genetically, right? We're, we're talking about, we have kind of created these incredible working machines, these incredible working companions, right? They're amazing at what they do. If you look at dogs that, you know, uh, still do the jobs that they were bred for today, I mean, they're incredible. Incredible at what they do. And then all of a sudden in the span of, I mean, what has it been 
half a century, probably, that all of a sudden we say, okay, dogs don't really have jobs anymore. Your job is just to sit on the couch, look cute. And also don't bite anybody. Don't bark at things. Don't pee in the house. Don't, don't destroy my furniture. Right. So they're not only are they not having jobs anymore, they're not allowed to express themselves in what we could maybe classify as many sort of natural inclinations of how I get frustration or energy out, right? Mm-hmm. And then on top of that, they don't have jobs, they don't have responsibilities, all they have is time to think and sit and stew. And on top of that, I think we also have a ton of extra expectations on them. We live in a world now that is totally foreign to, you know, what dogs were kind of built for originally, where we have kind of this hyper social human world in a sense where we live very, very close to each other. Now we're constantly taking our dogs out to places, you know, such as the vet, the dog park, a neighbor's house, the family barbecue, even just down the street for a walk where they're going to see 15 other dogs Mm -hmm. and a horse, right? They have a lack of a job, but they also have this like hyper social environment from a dog's perspective. I think you combine those things and you get just this complete overwhelm. It's like, I don't have anything to put my mind into, but I also have so much input coming in. And all that's expected of me is that I just kind of sit pretty and be really nice to everybody. Right. (laughs) So, and then especially if you think, you know, the mind of a predator, right? Dogs are predators and they're really good at that. And then we expect them not to become predatorial towards cats when they have no job whatsoever, or we expect them not to get reactive towards cars when they have no job whatsoever. Or, um, we expect them them to walk, you know, don't sniff anything, ignore the squirrel. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's like you you have to provide outlets. And so, yeah, I think I think absolutely, you know, lack of a job as well as just a totally foreign environment for a dog's brain. And then, of course, we have kind of we do have our stereotypes for dogs. You have the the classic golden retriever who just has adapted to our our current lifestyle and seems to do fine with it. Mostly wants to sleep on the couch or love everybody. Mm -hmm. And that's great. And there are some dogs that do really quite well with the current lifestyle that we have put them in. But I don't think that's most dogs. And I think that does a slight disservice to the dogs that aren't of that same mind, that aren't that, you know, uh, stereotypical golden retriever type dog, right? And it also does a disservice to the owners, right, who expect that. And then when they don't get that, they're confused and frustrated and not sure what they're supposed to do. And instead of trying to help their dog be the best dog they can, they try to turn them into a golden retriever. Exactly. Like the parents, exactly. like, why can't you be like that straight A student <laughs> who is in every activity yeah. and on the honor roll and all that? Why can't you be more like yeah. them? Or maybe this child has other gifts. Let's let's lean into the gifts that they do have. Right. Right. Absolutely. And that's one of the things that we focus a lot on with clients is I focus on let's not only diagnose your dog's issues and concerns and the mental stuff that's going on, but let's also diagnose your dog's personality. What is your dog like? What is your dog dislike? And how can we make that work with your lifestyle? Right. So how can we put your dog in the right situations, keep your dog out of the wrong situations, and then help them learn how to handle all of those situations, right? Um, one of my big things I always talk about an overlap. You want to be able to put your dog in a little bit of the wrong situation and have your dog still be like, okay, I, I know I got to do this, right? And what I mean by that is like, um, I always say that a good example is kids. Obviously, we want to teach our kids not to mess with the dog while it's chewing on a bone, right? Mm-hmm. But we also want the dog, in case of emergencies, in case the kid does end up messing with the dog while it's chewing on a bone, we want the dog to have a little bit of overlap where it says, okay, well, I know I'm still not supposed to bite the kid, right? right. And so it's the same thing where I focus on that a lot. Let's diagnose your dog's personality and then their issues. And then let's focus on how we can a solve the issues, but B cater to your dog's personality in a way that also still works for your lifestyle. And I think for most cases that works very well. It goes back to the analogy or the comparison of how you would treat a human psychologically. You don't try to turn them into this idealized model of what a human should be. You try to figure out who are you and how can you fit into society? Right. Let's optimize you. Mm -hmm. Because otherwise you're raising, it's not that you're raising the bar, it's you're trying to force them into a mold that doesn't fit. Right. And how boring would it be if if we all fit into the same mold? Yeah. You know, (laughs) it would be a very boring world. Our dog Maggie is very different from, her predecessor, Vinny, who is very different from his predecessor, Peaches, who is very different from her predecessor, Rosie, for whom Rosie Fund is named. But they're all so loved by us. 
and so interesting, so exciting. I don't get the people who try to clone their dog. Can I clone this dog? Can I get another dog from the breeder exactly like this dog? I, I don't see the appeal of that. It's fun to get to know this dog for who they are and mm-hmm. what that brings to your life that sometimes is unexpected. Like you said, right. that's more interesting. Right, absolutely. And what, one thing I do talk about a lot too is I had someone ask me the other day, what's the number one mistake that is made in dog anxiety cases? And I, I said partly in jest, but partly uh, seriously, I said getting the wrong dog in the first place. <laughs> I said because you have to make sure that when you are getting a dog, you work to get a dog that's going to, you You have a certain lifestyle. You already, unfortunately, right, you have a certain mold of lifestyle that's already there. So though you, you don't want to have to get a dog and force it to live in the mold that was existing that it was not ready for. That's that's getting the wrong dog. And unfortunately, people come to me after they've gotten a dog. So I never get to give this advice except for on podcasts, uh, which is why I like to bring it up, which is, you know, just focus on taking some time, take some of your emotions out of the process, right? Get a little more analytical about it. Okay, what's my lifestyle look like? What can I handle? Some people can handle a very anxious dog and are going to be the right home to be able to rehabilitate that dog. Some people are not built for that as much. And even though they can make adjustments, it's not going to be as easy as it might be for somebody else. And it might be very difficult for them. So I always say getting the right dog is really important. And I think for rescue, that's the case too, because all of the dogs need a home. Mm -hmm. But I think all of the dogs have you know, there, there's a home waiting for, for each type of dog, right? I have a pit bull who I adopted when he was three and a half. He is the perfect fit for me. He is just a fantastic dog for me. Most of my clients would not be a good fit for this dog. And his previous owner was not a good fit for him. He's a very high energy, very intense, a little bit hard to read. He's kind of an oddball when it comes to, I've, I've always said he's one of the more difficult dogs I've ever worked with. Mm-hmm. But for me, it works great. I love him. He's he's fantastic. He's a fun challenge for me. And so I think there's a dog for every home and a home for every dog in that sense. And I think it's important to make sure you work to try to get a dog that you're not going to have to squeeze into the mold of your life that is going to fit a little more easily. Yeah, there's a difference between incompatibility and behavioral issues that you Absolutely. and I might decide we're going to go on vacation together, Alex. And you say, great. I want to go to New York and Broadway and see all the shows. And I say, well, I want to go to a beach in the Caribbean and do nothing but sit. And so we do one or the other. And one of us is miserable and acts out (laughs) and is unpleasant the whole time. That's not something that needs to be fixed. That's just, this isn't going to work. Right, Um, right, exactly. But there could be behavioral issues where you're always rude to me, regardless of the situation or... I never want to do what you want to do. We never want to eat at the same restaurants just because I'm trying to be controlling or domineering. Well, that's something that can be fixed. We need to sort that out. To your point with dogs, someone who lives in an apartment and adopts an Australian shepherd or a border collie and then wonders why it eats their furniture because it's Mm -hmm. left alone for eight hours a day. Right. That's not a behavioral issue with the dog. That's an incompatible relationship. Right, right. I always say pretty much all behavioral issues are symptoms of a problem. And in many cases, it's symptoms of an incompatibility. And sometimes it's an incompatibility that you can shift your own life around and make yourself more compatible for the dog. I've had plenty of clients who are very noble, you know, do that and do that successfully. But that's where I always try to give that warning, you know, get the right dog in the first place, because rehoming is not something that I think should be shamed in the sense that if it's necessary and if it's going to benefit the dog yourself and the new owner, then obviously it's a beneficial thing, but it isn't the thing that we're aiming for. I think that it's, we, we always want to try to keep a dog in the home for life Mm -hmm. and to give it a wonderful life. And so I think working to get so many people, they go quote unquote with their heart. They're really going with their excitement (laughs) because, you know, a dog will, I, I was talking again, I was talking to someone who is a really fantastic, reputable breeder of hunting dogs. And she said, you know, people, because I mentioned, I said, I, I know people who, will uh, get a puppy, regardless of, you know, a shelter puppy or a breeder puppy, anything. They get a puppy. They say, well, I say, why did you choose this one? They say, well, he actually chose us. And what that usually means is the puppy ran up, jumped in their lap and started licking their face. And I was talking to this breeder and she said, I always tell those people that puppy chose the last two people who were here and it's going to choose the next five Mm -hmm. people that are here. (laughs) It's because it's not choosing you. It's simply a very excitable puppy, right? And Um, for tens of thousands of years, that's how dogs worked their way into our lives. Yes, exactly. If you think about, you know, and and there's a lot of there's some theories of 
how, you know, that evolution started. But the one that I think makes the most sense is that, you know, you think about the wild dog or wolf that would have had the best chance for working its way into human society would be the one that was not too afraid of humans, but also not too brave and aggressive around humans. The one that was right in the middle, right in that Mm -hmm. sweet spot. And that's that puppy that we see today that knows how to give us that pleasure of jumps in your lap, licks you all over and shows you how excited it is to see you. And, And like I said, that dog also has an ideal person there some people who are built for that dog that's on it that's my pit bull to be honest with you he's that guy he's he's super 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 high energy one uh, but i think it's really important to put aside your emotions when you're getting a dog and and use your analytical brain and take some time at the dogs that we feature on our social media for rosie fund that we promote for adoption it's so easy mm-hmm. to fall in love with every one of them you want to take every right, one of them right. home but you recognize most of them are not a fit for me. Right. That right. It would just be a bad idea. You uh, indicated your first sort of exposure to dog training, dog behavior was watching television shows, mm-hmm. which when I was a child, those shows didn't even exist. Right. But it would have made no sense. I, right. I'm, I'm old enough that dog anxiety, dog behavior, there were dog trainers to train your dog to hunt. Right. But, uh, or to train it to herd sheep, to train it to do a job, but not to treat anxiety or just behavioral issues. So, dog shows come along, the Caesar Milan kind of inspired shows, but many other mm-hmm. like that. Is it a double edged sword that it raises awareness, but then sets false expectations? that over the course of an episode, we're going to fix your dog. Yeah. Yeah. It's dog TV shows are, it's hard, um, particularly for me because they do have a special place in my heart. Cesar Milan was the one that turned me on to dog training, obviously a very controversial figure. And as are most, frankly, most TV dog trainers are controversial figures. Um, But I would say Freud is a controversial figure, but without Mm -hmm. him, we don't get to where we are now. Right. Right. That's exactly how I feel about it. I think, when it comes to the, the TV shows, TV dog trainers, there are a few things that I think are good about it, a few things that I think are difficult. I think the good things are that it helps people, I think it puts them a little more in touch with their dog's issues. It helps them understand a little more. What's, for me, it opened my eyes to what was going on behind the dog's eyes. I, I, <laughs> I legitimately, I kid you not, this is the moment. I was 14 years old. This was the moment that happened. I watched Cesar Milan work his magic. I turned to my lab, my chocolate lab, who was sitting next to me watching with me. And I, I said to him, I'm pretty sure my words were, I had no idea you had a brain. I, I, turned, I just, I said, I didn't know dogs were this interesting. Mm-hmm. And so it turned me on to this, oh my gosh, all these issues that my dog has, it's not because he's an idiot, it's because he's this incredible complex creature. Mm-hmm. And it turned me on to the beauty of a dog's mind. It made me just, and ever since that moment, I have been, I would wait, that was back in the days when Netflix was sending out, you'd get a DVD uh, yeah. from Netflix in the mail and then you'd mail it back, right? Uh, I say back in the days, like it was a long time ago. Yeah. It wasn't that long ago, probably about 10 years. I would, you know, wait the week, you know, whatever to get my new season on Netflix DVD. I'd pop it in. I'd binge watch all the episodes and then I'd send it back and twiddle my thumbs till I got the next DVD. I thought it was the coolest thing I'd ever seen. And so I think that's one of the big advantages is that it helps people. It piques our interest and it also helps us connect and see kind of the reality of the dog. And you start to understand, okay, this is a real issue. This is an issue that actually can be understood and can be worked on. And so I think it's really good for that. I think, and it also is good for providing some basic knowledge. Pretty much any TV show you watch that has to do with dog training will provide you some of the basics, which is dogs need a job. Dogs need, which, you know, translates to like exercise and things like that, right? Dogs, you know, they the certain needs are kind of set forth. I loved Caesar Milan's calm and assertive, right? Mm-hmm. Any, no matter what training methods you use, being relaxed and confident. I would say calm and confident because it's a little more relatable. Being calm and confident is the best energy for you to have in almost any behavior modification training scenario. And so there's things like that, some of those basics that he would kind of throw out that were really great for people to understand no matter what their dog was, no matter what the dog issue was. The problem I think comes when 
people think that because they watched, and this happened to me, I fell in this camp, because they watched a technique happen on TV, that they would be able to then go and execute that technique in real life. And I'll tell you, I can demonstrate a technique right in front of somebody, explain it to them super in-depth, they will do it wrong nine times out of ten as oh, soon as absolutely. I hand them the leash. Yeah. And, and then I have, you know, walk them through, you know, and this is just, I'm not dissing anybody. This is just human nature, right? This is how we work. This is how we learn is you have to try it, do it wrong. And then someone shows you what you did wrong. You try it again and you slowly do it right. And, you know, until you get it fully right. Right. And that's one of the issues is, especially when someone really gets confident about it and they think, oh, well, I watched, you know, I watched Cesar Milan do it. I watched Victoria Stillwells do it. I watched whoever do it. Right. And then they go try to do it themselves and they get themselves in trouble because usually what happens is they misdiagnose the dog in the first place. And then, of course, they then misdiagnose the technique that they should be using. And then they do the technique wrong anyways. (laughs) And so then you have this whole just incorrect dog training soup happening behind the scenes. And I think that's where dog training TV shows are tough. And of course, there's always the little warning. Do not attempt this at home. This is a professional trainer. No one listens to that warning. I never listened to that warning. It's the same thing as. The car commercials that say professional driver on a closed course, (laughs) yet they're just driving. I can can do this. They're just driving a car. Isn't this what you're supposed to use the car for? Casey Pet Project that we've discussed many times on the show, and actually we discussed this recently when we had uh, volunteer David Leidinger on talking about you get certified for dog walking, and there's different levels of dog Mm -hmm. walking depending on how easy it is to walk that dog. So there's orange level dogs, silver, blue. So people come in thinking, I'm volunteering to walk dogs. You need dog walkers. I've walked dogs all my life and have never lost a dog. Hmm. So I can do this. And then you go through the training and there's loose leash training and working walk training. And you see the staff member doing the training. Oh yeah, okay, I can do that. I can read the dog's behavior. And then mm-hmm. you're doing it. And just as you described, you think, okay, I'm doing that. No, you're not. And that's something very simple. That's not even a behavioral issue or an anxiety issue or something that's more complicated than the brain that you're trying to address. This is just learning to walk the dog. Right, right. That is such a good example. I tell people all the time, I say, I think one of the most difficult things to learn how to do in dog training is to properly walk a dog mm-hmm. because, and I say properly, that's a, a loose term. There's many ways to walk a dog. There's many forms of walking loosely, shield, all that, but or to be to consistent, be able to, properly, to identify, this is the way yeah. we want to walk our dog and then be consistent. Exactly. Exactly. To be able to really do a proper walk is, and I, and I also tell people as a general rule, you can assume that most of your instincts when it comes to dog training are wrong <laughs> because most of we're, we're primates they're canines and it's not the same. We're not the same animals at all. And our typical instincts are not correct, including people are tensing up their arm when it should be relaxed, which is by the way, most of the time I tell people your arm should almost never be tense on a dog walk, but they're tensing up their arm at the wrong time. They're staring at the dog. They're going at the pace of the dog. They're doing all of these things. When, when a car or another dog that they think the dog might react to comes, they tense up, they pull on the leash and all of the things that we tend to do just as natural instinctual things are wrong. My wife, when we first met, they had a little dog and we went on a walk at one point and I walked her through the basics of how to walk a dog. And she, she, to this day, she always says it blew my mind. I had no idea that there was anything to walking a dog. She said, I'd walk dogs my whole life. I thought I knew how to walk a dog. She was like, and then you came and you showed me real technique. And she was like, it blew my mind that there was actually anything to walking a dog other than throwing a leash on and heading outside. Basically being consistent is so challenging because yeah. The uh, dog training with Casey Pet Project starts with taking the dog out of the kennel. I won't go through every step of the process, but it comes down to they need to sit and be calm before you open the kennel door and walk out with them mm-hmm. so that they don't go leaping out because they could hurt someone, they could hurt themselves. Yeah. And we started doing that with our dogs. You get to the point where they do it pretty well, but they don't always do it. And you start to open the front door to go out and they start to go out ahead of you, but there's no traffic. There's nothing at risk out there. Okay, well, let's just go. But mm-hmm. that's not why you're practicing this. You need to be right. able to do it under these perfect circumstances so that when there is someone at the door unexpectedly, when you open it, the dog doesn't leap out or a car going by mm-hmm. so that you start your walk with a calm, relaxed dog. 
Right. And yes, they're going to be excited when it dart out the door because they're looking forward to the whole walk. They're looking forward to being right. outdoors. So they're going to be excited every time. So you can't just say, well, they're excited. Well, we'll let them go this time. We'll reward them being excited. Right. You're doing them a favor by teaching them to be calm. And it's that consistency that is so hard. Well, this one time, let's just kind of do it every time. Right. Absolutely. And and I think, too, being consistent with the rules, but also I think the way that you go about routines and things like that is huge. One of the things that I talk about a lot with anxious dogs is structure. And we talk about structure and boundaries is huge for particularly anxious dogs. And it's because I, I think I've kind of figured out I've done a lot of thinking about this because I, I noticed first that it worked well for them. And then I, f- I was like, okay, well, why is that? Why is that? I, li- I like to get really deep with things, really figure out like what's the root of why this works so well. And one of the things I found is that when I was working with, especially the particularly anxious dogs, sometimes the most effective thing was actually the, what I call the background training, which is not actually working on the moments of anxiety, but working on their overall baseline levels of anxiety. And I found that when I was working with those really intense dogs, sometimes it was actually more the basics, the background stuff like proper exercise, like structure and boundaries, things like that, that actually made the biggest difference for them. And I think the reason kind of comes down to, it's kind of similar to the job thing. When you don't know what's expected of you, and when you don't know what the rules and boundaries are, when there's no limitations to anything, you don't know where the lines of safety are. You don't know what is expected. You don't, everything is unsure. And that is just a breeding ground for anxiety. The way I always describe it is it's like, if you went on a safari and you were, you know, camped out for the night, you'd have a big fence around you, right? That fence keeps the lions out. So Mm -hmm. it keeps the danger out, but it also keeps you in, right? So it's a limitation on both sides. It's a limitation on the chaos of the outside world. And it's a limitation on your exploration of that chaos. I think that's a, a very philosophical way of explaining what happens in a dog's brain when you give them proper rules and boundaries, and especially, like you're saying, consistency, is they know this is what's expected of me. These are the rules. This guy is in charge of things, so I can just relax and have fun. It's not about being a, a big, bad alpha male. It's about being a guide and protector and and leader that your dog can trust and follow and feel safe with, right? And so when you provide that, the dog's anxiety can ease because anxiety is ultimately a survival thing. It's ultimately a fear response of there's unknown or there's possible danger, and I need to react to that. So when you say, hey, we're going to take away a lot of that unknown, we're going to give you a lot of structure, we're going to give you rules, we're going to give you boundaries, we're going to give you consistency, the dog can just breathe a sigh of relief um, and say, oh my gosh, this this feels so much better. I, sh- I demonstrate this with puppies particularly a lot. I'll have puppies that a client, the puppy will just be running around crazy. And I'll say, let's do what I call the claiming exercise, which is basically I take a treat, I'll put that treat on the ground and then I'll just tell the dog not to touch it. And I'll use physical, you know, I'll I'll kind of put up my hand to stop them if I need to. I'll give them the, you know, little no or leave it or whatever. And basically it's just calm, confident. I just say, hey, this is my food. Don't touch it. Just like another dog might do, a patient mother might do with her puppy, right? And the puppy will, after a, a minute or so, 30 seconds, they'll get the message. They'll kind of give me this quizzical look like no one's ever done that to me yes. before. And then almost every single time when it comes to the puppies, the younger ones, you know, two to four months old, they'll either walk over to their bed or they'll walk over to the owner's feet or they'll just stay where they are. But they will lay down in one of those three places and take a nap. Yeah. And the owner will just they just relax. And the owner looks up at me and and every time they say the same thing, they say, A, they'll usually say he never sleeps during the day and B, what the heck kind of voodoo did you just do to my dog to make him (laughs) drug my dog? Yeah. And it's, and it's, it's a minute, right? That exercise is so fast. It's one minute. And the dog is at first running around like crazy. I put a treat down, it flies towards the treat and then boom, it meets rules and boundaries from a calm, confident, stable source. And every time the puppy is, you can just see the wheels go, Oh, okay. That's what I was looking for. I was looking for where's the, where are the boundaries? Who's keeping us safe? Who's watching out for us? What's expected of me? Now that I know that I can finally relax and, and it's, it's an amazing difference. So I think that's huge for anxious dogs and all dogs, period. And people. And people. Yeah. If you don't raise your children with any structure or boundary or discipline, don't be surprised if they act out at school or daycare If they have behavioral issues, if they've never learned structure, boundary, discipline, you're doing them a disservice. And 100% social creatures like dogs are built to look for, we, we need to be able to fit into our social group. 
right? Humans, dogs, we, we need to be able to fit into our social group. And to do that, we need to know where the boundaries are. And I, I think, you know, you see dogs act out, you see kids act out. And I think it's for the same reason. I think it's because they're looking who's going to stop me and for what, right? And you'll see kids. Oh, go ahead. I was, I was just going to say, I would word that differently. I wouldn't need, okay. It's, I wouldn't say they need to know where the boundaries are. They need to know what boundaries are. Sure, because absolutely. boundaries can change. And if you don't know what boundaries are, you've never encountered boundaries before, it's no surprise that you don't behave right. appropriately in situations that have boundaries. Right. And you'll see, you know, I, I love watching little kids figure this out, right? It's a really interesting process to see them figure this out because you'll see a little kid, literally, they might go up to something, right? And like, so let's say it's a cup on the counter, right? Or, or not the counter, they can't usually reach the counter. Let's say it's a cup on a, a coffee table, right? And they might go up to that cup and you'll see sometimes a little kid will grab a cup. They'll go to drop it on the floor and they'll look at you and they'll watch you <laughs> as they do it because they're waiting to see at what point do you stop me? Mm-hmm. Where, how much is too much, right? What are the limits here? What can I do? What can I not do? And just like you're saying, what are, what are boundaries? What is this thing? What's expected of me? Because if, you know, we don't learn those things early on, then we go off into our lives. And if we, if we haven't been taught boundaries, then we go off into our lives and we can't fit into society and dogs are the same way where they need to be able to fit into, first of all, you and your home and family, right. But also broader society when they meet other dogs, meet other people, they need to know what's expected. And so I think absolutely it's a disservice not to teach proper rules and boundaries and do it very consistently. And that's a huge thing is people will always, <laughs> people tell me this, it cracks me up. They say, Oh, my dog, my dog knows not to jump up on the counter, but he does it anyways. <laughs> And I say, well, no, it doesn't sound like he does know yeah. not to jump up. It sounds like he knows that he can jump up on the counter. <laughs> I, I don't think you know what no means. <laughs> right. K-N-O-W like, or N-O. He, right. I think, I think your dog knows that you might occasionally discipline him for that. But your dog knows that it can get up on the counter. And people always people say this, too. They say, oh, my, my dog thinks he's the boss. I say, no, no, no. In the dog world, you're either the boss or you're not. There is yeah. no think. Your dog yeah. knows he's the boss because if he does things and gets away with them, he's the boss. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's not a rotating thing where we post it in the, no. in the break room. <laughs> yeah. Who's, no, and it's who's not like he's got some sort of weird. Right. And it's not like he's got some sort of weird complex like, oh, yeah, I, I, I'm in charge. But in reality, he's not. It's like, no, dogs just recognize. Yeah, I'm in charge or I'm not. Right. The chihuahua will be like, hey. This is my house. Welcome. Right? And, and the human's like, oh, he thinks he's in charge. And the dog's like, it's cute. Thinks yeah. that this is a complex, but no, I'm actually the one in charge here. Yeah. Thank you. Right. It's like. Now, our Peaches was so well behaved everywhere at home, like we were the boss. And when we would go to Bar K, which is a huge dog park in Kansas City, regular listeners will be familiar with it because we've had multiple discussions about it, but it has restaurant and bars and a couple acres of play area and some closed in play areas. But when we would go, she was very independent. So she wouldn't hang out with us. Once we were in, she'd just go either walking off or wandering off by herself. And if she saw something that interested her, she would run, but she would look for who's in charge. Is there a dog in charge? Is there a person in charge? There are dog tenders at Barquet that wear uniforms. They have a vest or a jacket that identify them. Mm -hmm. And there are regular ones that she would get to know. And she would break up dogs that were roughhousing if there was no one in charge. But if there was a dog tender there, she would leave it to them. And -hmm. sometimes she would even go get them. Yeah. We weren't in charge because we would just go off and say, okay, we're going to go get a sandwich or a a soda. Right. (laughs) But um, it was exactly what you were describing. Either she was in charge or she wasn't. And if we were around, we were in charge. If we weren't around, she would look to see who is. And if no one was, it was her. Right. Exactly. That's exactly it. They're super smart. They'll figure it out. And people who say, well, I, I don't know how to be discipline or that's so hard to be consistent or to be calm and confident. I think of so many episodes of Caesar Milan where the person would be tense on the leash. They're not calm and assertive. They're not relaxed. Mm-hmm. And he would point out to them, you're an emergency room nurse. Right. And you're telling me you don't know how to be calm and confident. Right. Every shift, every day, you are calm and confident. Otherwise, that emergency room is going to be a madhouse. 
This is what right. you do. Or they're an executive, a manager, a school teacher. They're people who could not do their jobs if they weren't capable of being calm and assertive, calm and confident. You need to be able to do that with your dog. Right. Absolutely. And I, I ask people that all the time. I say, hey, what makes you confident in other aspects of your life? That, you know, what are times that you feel confident? And sometimes I have had people answer me, you know, I, I don't think I'm ever confident. And then that's a different case. We say, OK, well, let's help you gain some confidence. And what I love about those cases is that their dog training experience is the first time in their life that they can really say that they've gained confidence. And and that to me is also a beautiful thing. I say, don't, you know, I tell people, don't shy away just because you don't think you can be confident. Don't shy away from it because maybe this is the way that you gain confidence, mm-hmm. right? Maybe this is some, some, uh, a place where you can, um, and more often than not, people are, people have more confidence than they think they do. But I think that, um, dog training for me, dog training has been one of the biggest methods of personal growth, I've gained a lot in the way of patience, in the way of confidence, in the way of communication skills, in the way of all sorts of things, right, through my dog training experience and continue to do so. And so I think take it as a learning experience where if you don't think you are a confident person, maybe your dog is a great way for you to learn that. And I get this too, you know, people, a lot of times people will say, you know, my dog is anxious, but so am I. And so what am I supposed to do about that, right? Because I feel like I can't Mm -hmm. be that source for my dog. And I, I usually say a few things. One of them is that, I have noticed that as long as you are able to project confidence in the dog realm of things, you can be a typically anxious person, have an overall anxious lifestyle. But as long as you're confident towards your dog, usually that works out fine. But the other thing I say is this might be a great opportunity for you to start to understand more about your own anxiety. And in service to your dog, you may be able to start to help yourself also become more. To me, I think there is no better way than helping somebody else through their issue to learn about your own issue. And so I think that can be a beautiful thing as well to see someone go, I'm learning about my dog and it makes a lot of sense why I feel the way I do. Right. It's like, and I'm not saying that you're a dog. I'm not saying you think like a dog or anything like that. And my wife was a very anxious person by nature. And when we first got married, she was very, very, very anxious. And I would bring in dog training, you know, uh, lessons and theories to our conversations. How'd she do with the treat? That really did not. Yeah. That, that did not make her happy. Did she take a nap all. when she you put would, the treat uh, down on the floor? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, I never tried that one. Um, luckily, I don't know if I'd be here today if I had. You know, I would I would mention something. I'd say, you know, it's kind of like when I'm working with these dogs and she would go, I'm not a dog. (laughs) And now what's funny is she recognizes the more she's learned about dog psychology. She's like, I have to admit, I'm more like a dog than I thought I was. Mm -hmm. She's like, it's it's, I always say, you know, dog psychology is kind of in many ways, a simpler version of our own, where we're a little bit more complex in the way that we think our traumas and things can be a little more complex. But ultimately, the same types of needing responsibility, needing boundaries, all of those types of things are important for both species and can help both of our mental health. It goes right back to the motto of Rosie Fund, which is we save each other. Yeah. You focus on what am I doing for my dog? What can I do to make their life better? And eventually you realize they were doing even more for me than what I was doing for them. Right. Any listeners who want to improve their relationship with their dog, not fix their dog, but identify what are the issues with anxiety or behavior that can be improved to make your life better and the dog's life better. Alex's dog training is linked in the description. It's Alex's dog training And if you're in New Hampshire, that would be awesome because you could do this face to face. But, uh, Just listening to our discussion, I think you recognize Alex obviously is uh, very good doing things virtually. So virtual dog training, address your dog's needs. Go to the website, again, linked in the description, and find out how your life can be better, but also your dog's life can be better. There you go. It's, I always tell people it's kind of like with one thing I've learned with technology, it's always user error. Every time I think this stupid computer, why won't it work? Turns out there's some button I didn't press. There's some mm-hmm. you know setting I didn't select. And it's the same thing with dogs where I always say it's nine times out of 10, it's user error. It's the owner is doing something that is either causing a problem or not doing something that would easily fix the problem. And mm-hmm. most of the time, it's not so much a problem with the dog itself. You know, I, I always tell people dogs, I've had a wide variety of dogs with a wide variety of behavior issues come to live with me. And in a very short period of time, 
those dogs become really good, easy dogs. And and it's because as soon as you provide all the proper things they need, and we do, of course, some work on, you know directly on the behavior issues, but it's very little you know about fixing the dog. It's much more. And that's why I started my online program is I was like, this is clearly an owner education problem, not a dog problem. The other reason I do virtual training too, and I really like this, is because I find that it prevents me from falsely solving the problem. What happens with a lot of trainers is that we come in, we take the leash, we solve the problem, the dog does great, and then we kind of have the owner practice it a little bit, Mm -hmm. and then we leave. What happens then is that, you know, the owner's like, hey, I, you know, next day they're like, yeah, it's not working. And it's because I firmly believe that in most cases, it's best for the owner to solve the problem under a trainer's direction. Because if the owner didn't solve the problem, it's very hard for them to maintain the solution. Mm-hmm. So that's another reason I do virtual training is it keeps me any progress we make is the owner did a great job and took my instruction. And now that progress can be maintained because guess what? I didn't do it. It was all you, right? So you know how to do it. You know how to maintain it. The other thing too is, I think trainers can make themselves look really good by fixing the problem. And then the owner's like, ah, it's just, I just can't do what you can do. And it's like, no, it's not a good trainer. A good trainer will help you fix the problem because unless I'm adopting the dog, I shouldn't be the one solving the problem. I I always tell people, I try to make sure that the only times I'm holding the leash is for diagnostics or demonstration. That's it. I'm either figuring out what's wrong with the dog and what we can do about it, or I'm showing you how to implement that. Besides that, leash goes back to you, and I'm not touching the dog after that if I can help it because I want you to be the one solving the problem. It'd be not like to if a, that creates a better bond. Yeah, it'd be like if a golf coach took the seven iron and said, "Here's how you yes. get a nice high draw. There you go. Now, now, yeah, you're 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 fixed. Take your club, go play golf. Yeah, and. And you're like, wow, you're right. That worked really well. Yeah. I can see how that works, right? Yeah. And then you go try it and you're like, it's just not the same as when There's he did it. There's something wrong right? with it's this like, club. The club is broken. Yeah, that's a great example, actually. I really like that example. I'm going to use that. I'm going to steal that from you. You're welcome to. <laughs> it's great for people to understand that doing it virtually doesn't mean oh, I'm settling for virtual yes. training. There are advantages yeah. Yes, absolutely. I think COVID really forced us to, because there's a lot more virtual training now than there ever was. And I think it really forced us to explore new options. And through that exploring, we found, hey, this actually, this works really well. Mm -hmm. You know, yeah, Yeah. I definitely. Yeah, all the businesses have figured out, hey, rather than paying for brick and mortar and all the liabilities associated Mm -hmm. with that, for what we do. Yeah, yeah. And, And I think people too, you know, need to understand that there's not a lot of anxiety specialists, you know, dog training wise, there's definitely a a fair amount, but there's not enough that you're likely to find one in your physical area that you can bring your dog to. Right. Mm -hmm. And so the other thing that's great about virtual is that if you have an anxious dog, you can come to me, even if you're in Kansas, doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. You can come to me because we're virtual. If you have a dog that is struggling with destructive behaviors or reactivity, well, you can go to whoever specializes in reactivity, right? Mm-hmm. Because they're virtual, right? You can go to the people who you need to go to because they're accessible wherever you are. And that just wasn't the case before. And I think also it's opening up the world. I really think that the future of dog training is going to be in specializing. I think we're going to start to see, like I said, dog training is like you were talking about. Dog training is a fairly new industry as far as this style of you know behavior modification type stuff. We've always been training dogs to do jobs, but as far as just training them to behave, it's a a pretty new industry compared to most industries. And I think just like we see most industries start out very broad. I mean, it used to be dentist and barber with the same thing. It's like in our minds, when you describe that, the barber pole. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. In, in, in our minds, that is craziness. Now you, you think I would never want my dentist to be cutting my hair or my barber to be pulling my teeth. That's insanity. And I think in 20 or 30 years, we're going to be going, yeah, I don't know why we had dog trainers trying to solve all of the problems, mm-hmm. right? I think eventually it's going to be general dog trainers are going to be kind of like our general practitioners, our physicians. It's going to be the person who broadly knows the issues, is able to solve the basic ones, but then besides that knows how to diagnose something and send you to the right specialist. Yes. And I think that's we're going to transform into seeing a lot more of that, which I think is very exciting because I think that means dog trainers are going to become much more expert in their areas. I think also you're going to get better service as well as because of that specialty, we're all going to be able to work together a little bit more rather than one of the things I love about specializing is now all of my competitors have become my colleagues. I can say, Hey, you do everything else. I just do the anxiety. So send your anxiety cases to me, which by the way, most of them don't want to deal with anyways. I've had multiple conversations with trainers say, thank goodness, because I don't really like those cases. So mm-hmm. I say, cool, I'll send you my aggression cases. You send me your anxiety cases. They sell. Sounds good. 
And it's an efficiency. It's kind of like I can do some home repairs, mm-hmm. but it's going to take me longer and I'm not going to do it as well. Yeah. But if I can pay someone who this is what they do every day, yep. it's worth it to do it faster and get it done right. Same thing with whether it's anxiety or aggression. It's like the people who do with aggression all the time, they're going to be better at it. They're going to help you move through the process. They're going to identify the problem faster, right. just like you are with anxiety. They can do more clients if they give you the anxiety issues, and you can do more anxiety clients if you're not spending time trying to figure out the aggression issue. Exactly. Yeah, I think I think it's going to be a good thing. And we're starting to see that. We're definitely starting to see more specialties. We can work together. We can share notes. We can send each other clients. I think the end result is going to be much better results for dog owners than we've ever seen. Oh, yeah, because it's going to normalize it to the point where people are going to then seek out the specialized right. um, treatment instead of just thinking, I need something for my dog, so I'm going to go to the first thing that comes up in my Google search. Right, exactly. They're going to look for their vet to refer them to the right specialist for behavior, just the way the vet refers them to the right specialist for oncology or orthopedics or or whatever the need is. Right. And it's interesting, too, because I used to think, you know, just as a basic behavior modification trainer, and I'm good at what I do, you know, even just with broad behavior modification, Mm -hmm. I I have a, a wide range of knowledge. But what's interesting is the more I've dug into specifically anxiety, the more I realized I probably don't know about the other behaviors that I've been treating for my career, right? And I I think, wow, it's so interesting. The more I dig into this, the more there is. And I think it's a good thing I'm specializing because I'm probably not as good as I think I am at solving all these other problems. I'm probably not as nuanced as I think I am. I, you know, I've gotten to the point where the more podcasts I do, the more articles I do, the more people I work with, I've started to write down all these notes of, I'm looking at my phone, I, you know, I have all these notes of various bullet points that I've learned over mm-hmm. time. And it's, I think the more you focus on one particular issue, the more you learn about it, the more incredibly deep your expertise gets. And so the better off that's going to be for the end user. Yeah. The uh, HVAC technician who comes to service my furnace is probably going to call an electrician to his house sooner than I would because he's going to recognize I would be in over my head. Whereas I would be naively thinking, I can figure this out. He knows what he doesn't know because he's closer to it. Right. I understand electricity better and I know that's dangerous. I'm not going to touch that because I'm an HVAC technician. Yeah, I think that's a good, I think it's a really good analogy. That's a very good point. Well, thank you again. And I look forward to you coming back, but thank you so much for being on Dog Words today. Absolutely. Thanks so much for having me. I'm Phil Hatterman, and you've been listening to Dog Words, presented by Rosie Fund. Thank you again to Alex Peacock for joining us today. A link to Alex's dogtrainingprogram.com is in the description. Don't forget to stay up to date on the Pooch Playoffs on our Facebook and Instagram pages, and to check out Claire Shelley at BigfootPetPhotography.com. A big thank you to alternative string duo The Wires, featuring cellist Sasha Groshong and violinist Laurel Morgan Parks, for playing the wonderful music you've heard on today's and previous episodes of Dog Words. Supporting The Wires supports our mission. Learn more about The Wires, including their concert schedule, at thewires.info, and download their music on iTunes. Check out fiddlelife.com and learn to play fiddle and cello fiddle online from Laurel and Sasha, even if you've never played before. Go to rosyfun.org to shop and get links to our social media. As always, please download, follow, rate, and share Dog Words. This helps us with sponsorships, then Rosie Fund can help more dogs. Send us your comments, questions, and suggestions via the contact form at rosiefund.org and let us know if you would like to be a sponsor or a guest of the Dog Words podcast. Thank you for listening to Dog Words, and remember, we save each other.